text this morning, Psalm 24, which is found on page 458 and 459 if you're using the Pew Bibles there in front of you. Hear now again the word of the Lord from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face, the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. You can perhaps already see that this wonderful and striking psalm of David essentially preaches itself. The preacher's dream can be organized into three specific sections, which you'll find printed there in your insert. I'm still working on my organization, two sermons in a row, two sets of notes. Now, I've titled those three sections of this psalm, first, the foundation of our praise, which is verses one and two, the foundation of our praise. The second section is the conflict of holiness and access, and that's found in verses 3 through 6. And then finally in section 3, the triumphant resolution, which comes to us in verses 7 through 10. Now sections 1 and 2 are each going to ask an important rhetorical question that is then answered resolutely in section 3. And section 1 asks the question, who is the Lord? This section establishes the principle of the lordship of God. It demonstrates for us his majesty, his power, and his dominion over all creation. And so it rightly begins the psalm by positioning us in a posture of worship and adoration and so forms the foundation of this psalm and the foundation of our praise. Section 2 then asks the question, Who shall enter into the presence of the Lord? Who can approach this God who is not only all powerful, who is not only Lord, but is also holy and perfect and pure? Who can ascend to his throne? And finally, section three provides us with this glorious and triumphant answer and resolution to that question. Who shall ascend into the presence of the most high God? Section three will give us a resounding refrain and answer to that question. So that is our roadmap and outline. Let us begin with prayer as we set out with the psalmist 
to marvel at the majesty, the holiness, the power, the glory of our God, the abundant goodness of our God. Let us gather around the God who by his own divine initiative justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here this morning to hear your voice, not mine. We pray, Lord, that you would speak powerfully through your word, that, Lord, we would hear. Give us hearts that are ready to be transformed by the work of your spirit working through your word. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. This we pray for the glory and in the great name of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. In answering the question of section 1, who is the Lord, verses 1 and 2 provide us with an immediate and definitive answer to that question, highlighting the Lord first as the Lord of all creation. Verse 1 states, if you look there with me, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's. If the question is, who is the Lord? The answer that is given is quite literally the one who owns the earth. And not just the earth, but the fullness of the earth. Everything that exists is the Lord's. The earth and all that fills it, all creation, all creatures of our God and King. Not only is the psalmist intentionally employing here some uh, beautiful poetic and parallel language, you notice that verse 1 kind of mirrors itself. But the repetition here is also meant to be both emphatic and comprehensive. Verse 1 is an emphatic and comprehensive statement of God's lordship over all creation. Who is the Lord? He is the Lord of all creation. Everything that is He owns everything that is. He rules everything that is. He governs over as sovereign king. From the snow-covered Swiss Alps to the heights of the Andes Mountains to the peaks of the Grand Tetons in Montana to the rounded corners of Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. From the Marianas Trench in the depths of the Pacific Ocean to the Great Barrier Reef of Australia, to the blue waters of the Gulf of Mexico, from the Great Lakes of Michigan and Ontario, to the Sea of Galilee, to Loch Lomond in Scotland, to Lake Blackshear, from the arid Mojave to the Sahara, from the vibrant jungles of the Amazon to the dusty plains of Uganda, to the rolling hills of Virginia and the pine forests of Georgia from the bustling cities of the Far East to the desolate ice tundras of Greenland, shall I go on? All is the Lord's. Not only these places, but also every creature that fills those places, shall I name every species, every insect and mammal and reptile and bird, every creeping thing that creeps in the language of Scripture. Time would fail us. We would be here for years speaking of the expanse of this world and the fullness thereof. But what you need to know, what the psalmist wants you to know this morning, is that north, south, east, west, every height, every depth, all places, all things great and small are His. He is Lord of creation. He owns, rules, and governs over all. 
And what proof do we have of this incredible statement? What evidence is there of God's lordship and rule? Why is he deserving of praise? Verse 2 tells us that God exercises rightful rule over creation. He is Lord over all creation precisely because he is creator. Because he created all things. All things are his because all things began with him. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. It's not enough that the psalmist is telling us this here, where we read these in words, we can see it evidenced in creation, can we not? Does not creation proclaim the lordship of God? The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist says. The skies proclaim The work of his hands day after day before us, they pour forth speech night after night. As we live under the stars, they reveal knowledge and their voice goes out through all the earth, proclaiming to the ends of the earth. The Lord is God. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All creation proclaims, behold, our God, he is the Lord of creation. The specific words that the psalmist uses here in verse 2 are founded and established. Founded and established. All things find their beginning in the God who has founded and established all things. He is indeed creator. Without him, nothing would exist. Nothing that is would be. But by the might of his power... By the word of his mouth, he spoke all things into existence. He created the earth and then he filled it with his creatures, declaring it good, thereby establishing the earth. But not only establishing the earth, establishing his rightful rule over all creation. I have no doubt that what the psalmist is doing here and what he intends to make us think of is Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He wants us to go back to the beginning. You'll notice he mentions specifically that this work of founding and establishing is done upon the waters, which are represented primarily by seas and rivers. Did you see that in verse 2? And this, I believe, is a a reference to the primordial waters of Genesis chapter 1, over which the Spirit of God was hovering in the beginning. And as God began to speak creation into existence, what did he do? But he separated, he separated the waters. He gathered them into their places and there formed dry land, which he called earth, Eretz, land. Now that the, he's mentioning seas and rivers here, this is also important for this reason as well. Understand that in In ancient times, great bodies of water, whether they were oceans, seas, lakes, rivers, these were seen as places of great power. The sea, in fact, is described in ancient literature as a place of great chaos, an unpredictable expanse of unrivaled and uncontainable power. And if you've ever been on a boat in a storm, you know exactly what that feels like. Even the smallest waves can make a boat pitch and turn And we've usually producing one of two responses in us. Either we're hanging on for dear life or we've got our head over the side losing our lunch while we're hanging on for dear life. Well, you'll remember in the Gospels that the disciples themselves endured something similar when they were caught in a vicious storm. Jesus, by the way, is sleeping in the bow of the ship, the waves crashing against 
the boat, they cry out, Master, we are perishing. We're dying. And Jesus arises and he rebukes the wind and the raging waves, which at the sound of his voice become immediately still and calm. And do you remember what they say? Do you remember what the disciples say? They say, who is this? Who is this then that commands even the winds and the waves and they obey him? Brothers and sisters, I ask you, who but God alone, the Lord of creation? That God is ruler, as the psalmist intends for us to see here, not only over the earth, but also over the waters. This in itself is, again, an emphatic and comprehensive proclamation of God's lordship over all creation for even the might and power and perceived chaos of the great rivers and seas and oceans of this world, they too must bow to their creator. Have we received an answer to the question that we began this with? Who is the Lord? I think we have. But you see, that answer also demands a specific response from us. You see, if God is the Lord of creation, if he is king and if he's ruler, and if indeed that's proved by the fact that he created all things and all things find their being in him and their beginning in him, not only then is the Lord the Lord of all creation around us, but he is also Lord of your life. He is your creator. He is your Lord. He is your sovereign king. And that demands a response from us His lordship demands a response of worship and adoration and praise and submission and humility. And this is exactly what the psalmist intends. He wants you to feel your smallness. The psalmist wants you to feel your creatureliness so that in beholding the glory and majesty of God, we might be led to doxology and praise. The foundation of our praise, brothers and sisters, is this. God is God and we are not. We are his creatures, the work of his hands. And because of that, we owe him our very lives. We owe him our very existence. God demands your all because he gave you your all. We are his creation created for the chief end of glorifying him and enjoying him forever. Now, Bound up in this fact, the lordship of God's lordship over all creation, bound up in this is also a great promise of assurance, which prepares us and leads us into the next section, the conflict of this psalm. What you must understand is this, as we transition to our next section, because God is Lord over all creation, because it is his, that means it is his prerogative to redeem it. This is the promise of God's divine initiative. What does that mean? That God will, by his own working, redeem his creation because it is his. Because he owns it. Let that lead us into this next section, which presents for us the conflict of this psalm. The conflict of holiness and access. Having established that God is creator, we now also learn that he is holy and pure and perfect and containing all righteousness in and of himself. And because God is 
holy and pure and perfect and containing all righteousness in and of himself. That means that whoever would enter into his presence, whoever would be with him, whoever would commune with him must also be what? Holy and pure and perfect. And so the resounding and I'll admit terrifying question of this section asks just that. Who is the one? Who is the one who will enter into the presence of the Most High God? Who can stand? Who shall stand in His presence? Who shall come before Him to stand in His holy place? You'll notice in verse 3 there that this, that this holiness is bound up with a specific place. Now just as the Seas and rivers of the world were considered places of great power in the ancient world. So too did people in the ancient world see mountains and hills and high places, places of great height as locations of great power where gods were said to dwell and descend from above to commune with man below. And so throughout the scriptures, you'll see references to worship, oftentimes pagan worship, but worship nonetheless, which is done on the high places. Now, of course, you'll remember from Exodus, right, that the presence of God descends upon Mount Sinai and Moses ascends the mountain to commune with God. This is also why the psalmist of Psalm 121 will say, I, too, lift my eyes to the mountains from where comes my help. What's his answer? My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth over and against the pagans who are going to the same high places to worship their false gods. The psalmist says, I go too to the high places. But guess what? I'm worshiping the God who founded the mountain upon which I stand. So when you see the phrase mountain or hill of the Lord in Scripture, it's, it's being used particularly as a kind of picture or metaphor of God's heavenly dwelling place. Think Isaiah chapter 2. The natural height and majesty and, and unshakableness of mountains, it, it, it lends itself to, to an appropriate image of uh, the pillars or foundations of God's palace and throne. Now, I don't know how many of you are mountain folk, but if you've ever hiked to the top of a particular mountain peak, if you've strived and climbed for hours and then finally reached the summit when you're hiking, you'll understand why such a place is associated with the presence of God. Sarah and I uh, took our honeymoon uh, out west and went to Sequoia National Park uh, in 2018. And while hiking there in the park, we, we came across the Moro Rock Trail. Now, the Moro Rock Trail is only about 0.5 miles, uh, so it's not very long, but it climbs in that 0.5 miles about 183 feet to put you out at about 6,700 uh, feet of elevation. Now, th- when we were climbing too, th- this was in December, so it's winter. Think uh, two, three feet of snow. Think ice, lots of ice. And I can still remember as we were making our way up these ice-covered steps, we were essentially crawling on our hands and knees because the railing was about knee height. I don't know who they made that for. <laughs> but we're crawling on our hands and, and knees, and I can remember hearing Sarah say, uh, my father would kill me. If he saw what I was doing, well, he's not here this morning, and he wasn't there either, and so we hiked on. But when we reached the top 
of moral rock, it was absolutely breathtaking. 360-degree panoramic view of snow-capped mountains and valleys. And so it's no wonder in my mind that such places draw out the kind of inspiration that would cause the psalmist to say, God is here. And yet, brothers and sisters, even the beauty and majesty of those places, they fail in comparison to the true reality of God's dwelling place. We know God doesn't dwell on mountains. We know he doesn't dwell in tabernacles or tents. God dwells in the glory of heaven. And though these things are meant to be pictures, that's all they are. They're pictures, they're metaphors. The tabernacle itself was, of course, meant to illustrate the very throne room of God, the Holy of Holies there being the very place where God would sit upon His throne, dwelling in the splendor of His own holiness. And we're given an image of God's throne room in Isaiah 6, which we've read this morning. It's a place of fire, smoke place of worship where angels flying around with their eyes covered call out unceasingly holy 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 is the lord almighty and the question that terrifying question that stands then as a part of this psalm is who shall enter into that place who shall stand before the glory of the almighty god And it's this question which creates the conflict and dilemma of this psalm. You'll notice here that the answer given in verse 4 is this, that the one who ascends, the one who may enter into the presence of the Most High God, must be one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. There's three Specific characteristics here of this one who may enter into the presence of God. Let's look at each of these briefly. First, the one who enters into God's presence must have clean hands and a pure heart. I think that's enough to rule any of us out. We don't need to go any further, do we? Who can enter into the presence of God? None of us. For who of us can say that our hands are clean? Who of us can claim that in all their works they've remained unstained? Who can say that these hands have never done wrong? Perhaps even the most righteous person that ever lived could say externally, I'm clean. I have not defiled myself. I have clean hands. I've never injured. I've never murdered anybody. I've kept the law. But I ask you then, secondarily, who can say that of their heart? Who has mastered every sinful thought? who has shackled every evil desire, who has not lusted in their heart, brothers and sisters, who has not willed evil on a neighbor in their heart, who has not coveted in their heart, who has not doubted and spurned God in their heart, who has not raged against the authority of God in their heart. Does anyone want to stand? It's not enough to be pure even externally. It's not enough to have clean hands. One must also have a pure heart. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, who can tame the heart? Who among red-blooded men and women descended from Adam and Eve could ever claim a purity of hands and heart? I'll answer for you, there is none. No, we, like Isaiah would be standing before Almighty God with trembling fear and despair, crying out, Woe is me, 
for I am unclean and I dwell among people that are unclean. Woe is me, for God is pure and holy and I am not. You and I are stained, stained with sin both within and without, and it is a stain which we have no ability to remove. But if that were not enough, the one who enters into the presence of God must not only be of pure hands and heart, but they must also worship God and God alone. That is, they must not lift up their soul to what is false. They must love truth. God is truth. And so the highest and greatest affection of the one who enters into God's presence, that highest affection can only be God himself. If there is one corner of the heart which is not devoted to God, that person is not worthy to stand before God. If there's one inch of the soul that loves anything more than God Almighty, then that person is not worthy to stand before God. Again, I ask, who could stand? Who among us has loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Who has never cast their affections at the feet of idols? Who has not loved the pleasures of this world? Who has not worshipped the gifts of the Creator rather than the Creator Himself? Who's, let me ask you a question. Does your heart not rage with a love of yourself? Whose mind and inner being is not driven by desires for material possessions, recognition, fame, Wealth and riches, pleasures and pleasures and pleasures. Who has not been swayed, not even once, by the lies of Satan and so rejected the truth of God? I ask you, who can stand? Who among us could stand and in our own power say, I've freed myself from the chains of idolatry? Who among us has not lifted up their soul and worship to something lesser? And if that was not enough, if you're not yet crushed under the weight of these holy requirements at last, we're told not only must we love the truth and so worship the truth only, but we must also speak the truth. Goodness gracious, who among us has never told a lie? Who among us has never said something which we regret? Who among us has only ever spoken the truth in love and not with a little bit of selfish motivation mixed in? Who among us has only spoken that which builds up and encourages? Who among us have not spoken words that barb and hurt and injure? Who among us can tame the tongue with all its reckless evil? Will anyone stand? You see, the great conflict and dilemma of this psalm is that it asks a question that we cannot answer. Because the one who may enter into the presence of God and be with him and be in communion with him is one who must be holy, pure, and perfect. And we are endlessly far from that standard of perfection. Now, if the psalm ended here, if we closed up our Bibles and went home, we would end in a place of hopelessness and despair. I hope you're feeling heavy. I hope you feel weighty. But if we ended the story here, that would be it. We would remain barred from the garden, a flaming sword of holiness standing between us and the paradise we lost. If it ends here, we're without hope or life in the world 
For we remain separated from the one who made us for himself. But brothers and sisters, the story doesn't end here. For into that darkness and brokenness and the crushing impurity and that weight of sin that I hope every single one of you can feel. Into that darkness comes breaking in a resounding message of hope. Because, brothers and sisters, there is one who has clean hands and a pure heart. There is one who has no stain nor trace of sin. There is one who loves his father, will love his father to the end of time with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is one who, though he was tempted by every lie of Satan, did not fall, but trusted in the sure and steadfast word of God and sent Satan packing. There is one who did not lift up his soul in worship of idols, but lived Lifted up his very life in an act of sacrifice and worship according to the will of God. There was one who, though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross for you. There was one who died, one who rose, one who ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he stands there ready to intercede on your behalf. There is one of whom it is said he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only one through whom we enter into the presence of the Father. There is one, and his name is Jesus Feel the weight of your sin dissipate to the sound of that name. There is one. Verse 5 says it is he, it is that one, singular, that one who will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. But verse 6 tells us that such is the generation who seek him. So hear this, brothers and sisters, there is one, but he brings with him many. We are that many. The resounding answer to the conflict and dilemma of this psalm is an answer which God himself provides. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The psalmist answers the Lord himself. The Alpha and the Omega The lamb worthy to open the scroll, the king of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ is the king of all glory. And it is this king of glory as we come to this triumphant resolution. It is this king of glory, this one who lifts up the ancient doors, not the doors that were temporary of Jerusalem that entered into the temple, but the ancient and everlasting doors of heaven. It is Christ himself who lifts up those gates that we may enter in. It is Christ, King of all glory, who comes to give sight to the blind, freedom to the slave, and shelter to the widow. It is Christ, the King of all glory, who brings what is dead to life. It is Christ, the King of all glory, who turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. It is Christ, King of all glory, who conquered sin and death as a king by the sacrifice of his own life. It is Christ, King of all glory, whose torn flesh tore the veil that separated us from the presence of God and gives us access into the very throne room of God. It is Christ, King of all glory, who places his righteousness upon you, justifying you and declaring you pure, though you are not, yet you are declared pure before the Lord in the sight of the Almighty so that you can stand in his courts with boldness and joy and sing the songs that you sung this morning. It is Christ, King of all glory, who sanctifies us, 
transforming us more and more into the image of his glory and holiness until we attain to that perfection. It is Christ, King of all glory, who freed us from the grasp of the enemy, who trampled over the gates of hell. The gates of hell do not prevail because the gates of heaven do. It is Christ who now leads us out as a host of captives and he leads us in triumphal procession as we go from one degree of glory to another until our faith turns to sight and we stand before the presence of God Almighty where we will worship him forever and the splendor of his holiness. Here then, brothers and sisters, is your triumphant resolution. Christ has, by the merit of his own blood, flung wide the doors of heaven that you may enter in. So I say to you, let us rejoice and come boldly now before the throne of God. For it is Christ who conquers Christ who justifies, Christ who sanctifies, and Christ who glorifies. So what what left is there to say, but all glory be to Christ our King. His rule and his reign will ever sing, all glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are undone by the act of your Great love. For while we were still sinners, enemies of you, bearing the mark of your divine justice and wrath, you saved us through Jesus Christ. Not because of anything worthy in and of ourselves, but simply out of the abundance of your love. Lord, what we, we have no words, but we sing with joy that is inexpressible for this great gift that we have received. Access, holiness, forgiveness, redemption, restoration in Jesus Christ. Hear from our hearts and lips this morning. All glory be to Christ. Amen.